0: To be able to do a cochlear implant and talk to a patient about how they're going to appreciate music afterwards is pretty phenomenal, and that uh, would not have happened without the ongoing commitment of the engineers in the cochlear implant industry to
1: improve the technology. Welcome to Hearing Health Today. I'm your host, Craig Sharp. In our final episode of this season, The Future of Hearing Care, A Surgeon's Perspective, we'll hear from Dr. David Kelsaw, a surgeon and global expert from Denver, Colorado, we will explore what we have learned from clinical trial research and how this, coupled with changes in surgical technique, can help shape the future of hearing healthcare. This is a podcast for hearing health professionals. If you are a person with hearing loss or a member of the general public, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Dr. Kelsa, thank you for joining us on this episode of Hearing Health today. You're welcome, it's a pleasure to be here. And where are you speaking to us from today?
0: I'm at my office in Denver, Colorado, Rocky Mountain Ear Center.
1: Fantastic. I understand you have a long storied history as a cochlear implant surgeon and in the hearing health community. I'm just curious what inspired you to get into hearing health in the first place?
0: As a child, I had a lot of ear problems myself. In fact, have a scar behind my ear. Was quite sick with a bad mastoid infection in the early nineteen sixties. And that was kind of the beginning of ear surgery. So somewhat uh experimental what they were doing at that point, but I survived it and I think it uh sparked my interest in the whole area of hearing health. Also, the time of my training was just when cochlear implants were being studied. In fact, I began my residency in 1986 when we had FDA approval for cochlear implants in adults and then started practice in 1990 when we had FDA approval for cochlear implants in children so that the timing was just right for me to get into the world of cochlear implants.
1: Yeah, so you really timed it perfectly, I think, just in terms (laughs) of your training and entrance. Did you always want to be a physician or a surgeon, or is that something that came about later in life?
0: No, I always was interested in medicine. My dad was a pediatrician and kind of got us all interested in medicine. We used to do house calls with him and make hospital rounds, and really the only way we got to see him was to go on rounds and house (laughs) calls with him, so uh, I was pretty interested in medicine from an
1: early age. Yeah, fantastic. And have you always worked at the same center that you're at today?
0: I've not. I've been in uh, two different practices. So okay. was with
1: a larger group for a while and then went out on my own in uh, 2002. And how have you seen your practice grow? What were the numbers looking like when you went out on your own in 2002? And what does it look like today?
0: We're continuing to see increases, particularly in, in cochlear implant uh, surgeries that we're doing, as we get more and more widespread acceptance of the technology, more awareness of the technology. We're definitely seeing increased numbers of cochlear implants. Of course, we'd like to see even more patients be able to benefit from the technology, but we're, we're busy. It's been a, an increasing number of patients, and I brought a partner on about five years ago to help with the, uh, the number of patients that we're seeing.
1: And one interesting thing I wanted to ask you about, so I know you have a a long history of cochlear implantation surgery in the United States, but I understand that you also lead um, mission trips with physicians and other healthcare providers to other parts of the world to help deliver hearing care. And could you talk to us a little bit about that? What does that look like? And how does that care delivery model differ? Like, what do you find on the ground in some of those countries when you lead those trips? And how are you able to sort of contribute to moving the ball forward with hearing health in those communities?
0: The medical mission trips we've been able to do have been absolutely fascinating for me. I think I get more out of the trips than anybody, but I've I've personally been able to go on over 20 medical missions, and it is a much different model than we see in the U.S. in terms Mm -hmm. of the type of care that we give. We really have four goals on these trips when we go. One is to really train the local docs in how to do ear surgery. We know we can't do every ear in the world in terms of surgically treating them, but if we can train the local doctors to do it, Uh, Obviously, they can carry on every day. We also will be doing surgery, but also we fit hearing aids on these trips, so we'll take donated hearing aids with us, and a team of audiologists will also be training the local care providers in in fitting of hearing aids. The third thing we really try to do is empower them with equipment that they need because Mm -hmm. often the surgeons are trained, they have an interest in their surgery, but they simply don't have the technology that we need to to do it correctly. So we often will try to get them donated drills and microscopes Mm -hmm. and micro ear instruments to help them. And then kind of a a fourth goal we have on these trips is to leverage us being there into improved awareness of hearing loss and also being able to work with the local government Mm -hmm. to get more awareness and support for the hearing teams in the local communities, because a group coming in from the United States often carries some weight in terms of being able to meet with the local governor or the newspapers mm-hmm. or uh, other ways to leverage exposure. So it's been great. We try not to go to the same location over and yeah. over again because we're trying to, to teach the local docs how to do it. And it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Unfortunately, we've had to delay it now for a while with yeah. COVID. And all of the trips that I've done have been in Latin America, we do have to uh, adjust our goals and our surgical technique often with the local community that we're in because mm-hmm. we know what works in. The United States may not work in a local community that may not have follow-up and things like that. Cochlear implants have been part of most of our trips, but the majority of what we're doing is more acute needs like chronic ear infections, Mm -hmm. tumors, children born without ear canals, things that um, aren't so technology driven.
1: And are most of these trips, are they in rural areas or urban areas or kind of a bit of both?
0: You know, we can't be too rural on our medical missions because Mm -hmm. we do need some basic Things Mm -hmm. like an operating room that functions and sterile technique, Mm -hmm. and we also need the local docs to be able to screen the patients for us and also Mm -hmm. commit to following them afterwards. So most of them have been to not huge communities, but also not real
1: small towns, so something in between. So you talked a little bit about, you know, the wide array of surgical procedures that you do on those missions. I want to just rewind maybe a few years and ask you about surgical techniques, specifically as it relates to cochlear implants. How have you seen that evolve over the years? And is this something that is pretty routine and can be performed in a wide variety of settings across the globe, or is it becoming more specialized where it does really require a specific type of equipment or a specific setting in order to perform it?
0: Cochlear implant surgery has changed significantly over the years, drastically, even from when I first started doing cochlear implants, the surgeries were three to four hours in length. Mm -hmm. Uh, They involved overnight stays in the hospital. They had more higher rates of complications and we universally would lose all of the patient's residual hearing mm-hmm. when we did a cochlear implant. So patients had to be willing to commit to that in terms of the, the future use of the technology. Now it's really less than an hour, about 40 minutes would be an mm-hmm. average surgical procedure. They're all outpatient, uh, fewer complications. And I, I really consider them minor surgeries at this point. We're also now able to save residual hearing in about mm-hmm. 70% of patients. I'd like to even make it higher than that, obviously, but it does make the decisions easier for them when they know they may not lose all of their residual hearing. When we do these in third world countries, we mm-hmm. we can generally do the technology, the surgical procedure without an issue. It's it's the post-operative care that can be more challenging okay. in these other communities because the cochlear implants do need to be programmed yeah. and maintained on a regular basis. And often that expertise just isn't available in their local community. So we have to be very careful and very responsible that we're going to do this procedure in a way that's going to allow the patient to have the appropriate follow-up and maximize the use of the implant. We really hate to put them through that and have them become a non-user, for example.
1: One question I had, too, just around surgery and the number of surgeons that are actually performing cochlear implant or hearing implant surgery in general. So if we look at the number of adults, especially in the developed world that could benefit from a hearing implant, only about 5% of people who could benefit from one have one. And we've heard both anecdotally and quantitatively through different research instruments that one barrier to moving that ball forward is access to a surgical center that's you know close to home, not having to drive several hours, especially if you're dealing with an elderly patient. And I'm just curious, do you think there's opportunity for more... Um, otologists or ENT surgeons to take on cochlear implants as part of the caseload that they actually manage?
0: You know, I think all of us as cochlear implant surgeons feel we can be doing more surgical procedures. As you say, it's the referral network getting the patients into us in the distance that they need to travel that can be a barrier to them. We've been able to establish what we call the clinical provider network, which Mm -hmm. currently has about 10 audiologists from the region who will do the post-operative care and programming and even the pre-operative testing for these patients. So, for example, a patient in Casper, Wyoming would get evaluated there by their local audiologist, Mm -hmm. uh, would come to see me the day before surgery, have it done, go back to their local community, and have all of their follow-up care there so that they're not making that eight-hour drive back and forth to, to our center. So, I think there's a lot of surgeons doing cochlear implants. You do need to be careful in terms of making sure that the surgeons have the expertise the experience to do it and continue to do enough surgeries to be good at what they're doing. But this clinical provider network has has really been a way to increase the referrals and minimize the problem with patients who need to travel a, a large distance after surgery.
1: And how long have you been using that clinical provider network?
0: Oh, boy, we've been doing that for more than 10 years now. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, but the Early numbers, adopter.
1: <laughs> yeah, it
0: was. We were very early on. And yeah. there, there's a bit of a leap of faith there. You have to be yeah. certain that they're able to do uh, quality work. And we require mm-hmm. them to to communicate with us on all of the postoperative visits that they see to make sure the patients are doing well. But generally, it's been a very, very successful way to increase the referrals and minimize the travel time for patients. Because as you say, if you're a rancher in rural Wyoming, to Mm -hmm. travel to Denver five or six times in that first year can be a good reason not to get the technology done.
1: I've talked to a lot of surgeons around the globe who've said they'd love to do more surgeries, but- they're sometimes not always seeing the patient load come through. So that has an impact on the number of cochlear implant surgeries that they're able to do. And I'm just curious with your expertise and perspective, having set up that clinical provider network, what sort of advice would you give to a surgeon elsewhere, um, either in the United States or somewhere else in the world, who's looking to build out a referral network potentially beyond their normal catchment area?
0: We know the two major reasons that patients aren't coming in for cochlear implant surgery is the the lack of referral, and the second reason is still a fear of surgery. We know that these patients still have a concern over being in operation. So for the first issue, obviously educating mm-hmm. the audiologist is, is critical, the hearing care specialists to be sure they're aware of the current criteria for cochlear implantation. And part of our clinical provider network is ongoing education of the referral audiologists so that they're up to date. The second problem is a little harder to deal with sometimes in terms of the fear of surgery, because it is still a general anesthetic. There are complications that can occur, but hopefully again, as, as things have changed and it's becoming much more of a minor procedure, we can get the word of, out about that to allay the patient's fears in terms of risk of surgery. But it is a problem. We're well aware that the number of people in the U.S. getting implants is is just a, a drop in the bucket for those that could benefit. And yeah. in third world countries, in less developed mm-hmm. countries, yeah. we know those numbers are even less.
1: Yeah. It's amazing that we've come so far, just even in the past 20, 30 years, In terms of outcomes for cochlear implant surgery, you mentioned, you know, three to four hour surgery where you routinely lost residual hearing in the early 90s to a place now where it's an outpatient procedure, typically an hour, hour and a half and much better chance of preserving residual hearing. Where do you think the future lies? Where do you think we're headed in the next five to 10 years?
0: You know, I think short term, I would hope that our ability to provide this to more and more patients is going to increase. Uh, I think we will look at much broader coverage by government payers and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Long term, I think the goal would be to not need cochlear implants, right? Mm-hmm. If we can do things with hearing loss prevention, mm-hmm. uh, if we can do genetic diagnosis and even genetic treatment, and now looking at ways to for nerve regeneration or stem cell research research, stem cell techniques to restore hearing, it's possible that long-term we won't need cochlear implant technology, but
1: I think that's still a long way off and won't happen in in my lifetime. Yeah, fingers crossed. Maybe, maybe we'll see sort of yeah. uh, where the technology goes. And to that end, I know that you're involved in a number of clinical trials and have been involved over the years. What aspects of cochlear implant technology are you involved with from a clinical trial perspective, and what interests you right here and now in terms of the research that you're either involved with currently or would like to get involved with in the future?
0: The cochlear implant industry is exciting because it's constantly changing. Certainly not a stagnant industry and that can be a challenge for all of us in the field to stay updated uh, on the technology. Being part of the clinical trials has been extremely rewarding for for myself and my team because we know we're on the cutting edge. Currently, we're involved with the uh, drug delivery electrode, which I think will be very, very exciting. We're also part of a large clinical trial looking at a new internal device. So really, we've been involved with uh, all aspects of cochlear implants, and we've been lucky to be able to be part of the research. It it is an undertaking to, to do clinical research and it does take a commitment of, of time, effort, and money to keep going, but we've been able to do that. And uh, I think it, it keeps us all driving forward and looking at ways to improve this technology.
1: And I noticed you had a recent publication around cochlear implantation and the benefits of bimodal hearing, looking at that from a longitudinal perspective. Could you tell me a little bit about that and, and what you found in that study?
0: Yeah, that study was very exciting. We were again part of a multi-center study. There were actually 13 sites in the world that did the trial. So the paper we published was accumulation of the results from all 13 sites. It really looked at bimodal hearing in terms of comparing cochlear implants post-op and compare with their pre-op hearing aid scores. And clearly we saw, as expected, improved performance, most of it within the first three months, but even saw further improvement up to a year afterwards. The second part of that study was looking at combining a cochlear implant in one ear with the hearing aid in the other ear and looking at the effect of bimodal hearing, hearing with Mm -hmm. both ears, and again, significant improvement as compared to their preoperative scores with with hearing aid technology alone. So I think this study confirmed uh, what we all expected, but it was really nice to have this because it was a prospective Mm -hmm. study. We weren't just looking back at data. We really planned the study and, and moved it forward in a prospective way, which carries a lot more weight in the world of research.
1: And have you changed any of your clinical protocols as a result of either that study or some of the other clinical studies that you've been involved
0: with? Absolutely. Uh, I think what's changed here is our our counseling of patients. We definitely counsel them about the importance of bimodal hearing and the fact that their performance can improve even up to a year afterwards.
1: Yeah. Interesting. And do you generally see good adherence with bimodal hearing? Having changed your protocol to, I guess, counsel patients around the importance of it, have you seen a bit of a behavior change there?
0: We have. I think patients really trust our opinion in that regard and they may not get great benefit from their hearing aid in the other ear, but we know we can show them the importance of it. And also we know it's important to keep the nerve stimulated on the non-cochlear implant side if they're looking in the future having A future cochlear implant potentially on the other ear as well we've also been very active in research on remote programming being able to hook a patient up through the internet and so they may be at their home in casper wyoming and we're able to hook them up through uh, an internet connection and program them so they don't have to make the frequent trips to denver or for example a child who's suddenly off the air and they're eight hours away we can hook them up remotely and intervene much more quickly to get them back uh, to the hearing world and back to school and things rather than a a two-day trip to Denver.
1: Yeah. And that's amazing. I know that you guys do have quite a large patient base in Wyoming and other parts of Colorado. Using some of those remote care tools, do you feel like the referrals or your patient base in those communities has grown even further now that you're able to provide a, a higher level of service?
0: We do, yeah. We think it's been a, a real a plus for referrals and save these uh, clinical provider networks where their local audiologist yeah. is doing the programming. If they're having an issue where they're not mm. getting the results that, that they want or that the patient is happy with, we can hook up remotely and help them with that programming session again without anybody having to leave their local community. So our research and and further follow-up research that led to the FDA approval for remote programming has been a great plus, I think, for the industry overall.
1: There's a lot of centers who like the idea of remote care, remote program, but they're a bit weary about introducing it into their clinic because they want to see the patient in person. That's what they're used to. Just curious to get a little bit of your experience. How's that gone? Was it difficult at first? Was it difficult to manage that change from seeing everyone in person to doing more and more things remotely? And and how did that play out over time?
0: It definitely took some time for the audiologist team here to be comfortable with it, but part of our research was to look at the satisfaction of the programming session for the audiologist and also the satisfaction for the patient In terms of how they felt that it went. And really, there was no significant difference between an in-person session and a remote session. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We do hook up video capability as well. So we're seeing the patient and particularly important for children as we watch how they respond to the cochlear implant uh, visually.
1: And during COVID, did you, as a surgeon, did you ever do any of the pre-procedure counseling remotely?
0: Good question. We did set up telehealth appointments and we mm-hmm. still are doing telehealth appointments. I did not do pre-operative counseling. I wanted to yep. see the patient. Yep. I think it's important. I don't know it's still important for me as a surgeon to meet face-to-face with a patient yep. and establish uh, that relationship and that rapport. I think it could be done, but Because they're coming down for surgery face-to-face anyway, uh, we did not do that. But for follow-up, telehealth has been a a very valuable tool during COVID. And even without COVID concerns, we'll continue that just given the distance that patients need to travel. Obviously, you can't do an ear exam. There are limits with telehealth, but it's been a very valuable tool for
1: us. We're about 40 years into this cochlear implant journey, at least and given your history and you know we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast you sort of timed this perfectly from entrance into the medical profession to hit all of those first milestones what has surprised you the most about the advancements that have been made over the last 4 decades both in terms of technology and in terms of patient outcomes
0: i've been continually impressed with the uh, the cochlear implant industry in terms of the innovation and the the real emphasis that the industry has placed on continuing moving this technology forward. I mean, to be able to do a cochlear implant and talk to a patient about how they're going to appreciate music afterwards is pretty phenomenal. And that uh, would not have happened without the ongoing commitment of the engineers in the cochlear implant industry to improve the technology. Just from a, a patient's perspective, I mean, it really has gone from an experimental device where we didn't know what the results would be for a patient, to now being able to say to them with virtual certainty what they're going to get from the implant, and they do well with it. It's certainly no longer experimental and very much a predictable outcome for the vast majority of patients, so it's, it's been a, a real change in that regard. We counsel them, obviously, much differently than we used to in terms of their expectations.
1: Yeah. And I guess to that end, so uh, we talked about geographic barriers to access, but another thing that comes up frequently is fear of surgery. When you have um, patients, you know, who are in that severe to profound hearing loss category might have hearing aids that they're not getting a whole lot of benefit from, but are a bit reticent about moving forward with surgery, knowing what you know now and the history that you have in, in the hearing loss space. How do you counsel those patients that do come in, are clearly a candidate, but just do have some hesitation about the surgical procedure?
0: Again, it's still a real barrier for a lot of patients. I spent a lot of time with them going through the surgical procedure. We know now that complications and uh, serious side effects from cochlear implant surgery are are much different than they were in the past. Again, I consider a more minor procedure uh, than, than it certainly used to be. And Uh, There's still going to be some fear of that, regardless of how much you can counsel them. And we know certain patients just won't have it done because of that fear of surgery. But the fact that it's so much safer, I think we can reassure them in, in many ways that they'll have a good outcome.
1: I did want to talk to you a little bit about the Listen Foundation. So I understand that you're heavily involved with that. And uh, there's a Cochlear Kids Camp component to that. And I'd love to just learn a little bit more about what is the Listen Foundation and what sort of activities come out of that foundation and the work that you're involved with.
0: Yeah, Over the years, I've worked with several nonprofits. The Listen Foundation has been one that I've been involved with for many, many years. Their main mission is to provide auditory verbal therapy for children, with hearing loss, whether they have hearing aids or cochlear implants. But a side benefit of the Listen Foundation has been that they've taken over our what we call their cochlear kids camp. I started it in 2001. And initially it was a group of our patients who wanted to spend more time together and really share the successes of their cochlear implants. So uh, we made the first trip up to a camp in the Colorado mountains in 2001. And that was a small group of just 20 families, but it quickly grew into really twice a year camps. Now we've had over 3,000 families attend the camp uh, from really every state in the United States, I think, except one, and three foreign countries as well. And it's a, a four-day camp, and the the goal of the camp is to educate the the parents about cochlear implant technology, let them interact with industry representatives, in and in a casual situation but even more important, provide for the children the ability to make friends with other uh, patients in their age group with cochlear implants and really, again, share the successes that they have with their cochlear implant technology. This group of patients is unique in that they're not part of the deaf community, they're not truly part of of the true hearing world and that they have uh, severe to profound hearing loss. So it can certainly provide uh, challenges for them emotionally, personally, and educationally. So uh, the camp is provided a, a great resource for for families to meet other families, talk about the issues that they're dealing with, and and honestly make lifelong friends uh, of, of other children and families with cochlear implants. All of the volunteers that we get uh, at camp have, uh, the vast majority have cochlear implants themselves as adults. So it gives the families an opportunity to interact with with adult uh, patients as well and see how they're performing and really be role models for the kids. So it's been a great program. I'm lucky we've been able to continue it now for 20 years. We just had our our 20-year camp and again, two sessions a year uh, with waiting lists for almost all of the camp sessions. So we know the need for this is great.
1: And for people who wanted to learn more about the Cochlear Kids Camp, how would they do that? Where would they go?
0: So the Listen Foundation website uh, has great resources on there about the camp.
1: Great work. I I can imagine that that is uh, life-changing for a lot of kids and families.
0: It really can be. In fact, at the last camp, we had a family from San Francisco. Both parents were physicians, so well-connected in the medical community, but they had never met another family with a cochlear implant. So for them to, to come to a camp and have access to uh, kids. And again, they're matched by age group. So they really have the same issues that they're dealing with and, and can learn so much from each other.
1: Wow, fantastic. And I wanted to ask you you previously mentioned that you've seen quite a bit of growth in your clinic over the past 20 years. And one unique aspect of treating patients with cochlear implants is that it's not an intervention that lasts an hour or even a month, but you continue providing care for patients throughout their lifetime. So how do you balance that need for providing quality care for patients throughout their life while also welcoming new patients into the practice who would benefit from cochlear implant technology?
0: Yeah, it's a real catch-22 because we we love taking care of patients. We love the fact that um, we get to know them. We follow them over their lifetime. and And really, once they become a cochlear implant recipient, they they need care for their entire life. So that's the good news. The bad news is that they do need care for their entire life. And financially it, it, and just numbers of patient-wise, it can be difficult for clinics to, to manage that volume of patients again you know, over their entire lifetime. One really great thing has been that the cochlear implant industry and cochlear implant companies have recognized that difficulty and have really made some strides to work on technology, work on support situations where they can really help the clinics to streamline that approach and provide excellent quality care, but also make the aftercare easier and less draining on clinics because it, it can become a, a real burden. But we've been able to, to really work as a partnership, I think, in that regard and uh, I see that continuing uh, in the future because industry realizes the the burden that clinics have.
1: So you found that that technology has helped you become more efficient as a clinic so that you can keep people coming in the front door?
0: Absolutely. Our clinic efficiency is way up because of these tools. I think there's more that can be done, but it's been a huge help to us. And we've been grateful to industry to be able to provide those tools. The other big piece has been helping us in the operating room with technology and one issue with cochlear implants is always, uh, is it in the right place Do we have the, the electrode in the correct position? We've been seeing some recent advances in, in cochlear implant testing in the operating room that helps to answer that question, which is, is I think, a, a, a big help to us and will be in the future, particularly for clinics that may not have the ability to do the degree of testing in the OR that we do. For example, fluoroscopy to look x-ray wise at the location of the electrode. So this is a a changing field. It continues to change on a daily basis. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it can be a challenge to all of us to to keep up to date. But as a committed cochlear implant surgeon, and as a team of Cochlear implant audiologists, you really need to be committed to staying up to date. And if you're offering all Cochlear implant technologies from different manufacturers, uh, that keeping up to date even becomes more difficult because you have now devices and four companies to keep up with. So it can be a real challenge. And I think it points to the fact that being a Cochlear implant a team is is something that people really have to be committed to. And for a, a say a surgeon starting out in the field, you really have to make the commitment to taking care of these patients for life and staying up to date on technology. Because if you don't do that, you're really not doing the best for y- yourself or your patient, but it does take a commitment and a just constant uh, reading of research and being part of research clinical trials to, uh, to stay up to date. So it's an exciting world, but also a challenging world for that update.
1: Obviously you've been involved in a number of clinical trials and I know you keep up to date on the manuscripts that come out in different journals. Are there any other activities that you'd recommend to peers in the field to help them stay on the cutting edge of technology? Yeah,
0: I mean I think the the national meetings that are that are put on are obviously a huge resource for all of us in the field to get a lot of information in, in a short period of time. With COVID, those meetings have been more virtual, but we're going back now to in-person meetings and the, the Cochrane Plant Alliance, which I've been able to be fortunate enough to be on the board of directors now, uh, is having their large meeting next May in Washington, which will be an in-person uh, meeting. So I, I think those meetings are a great way for all of us to stay up to date and to talk to each other informally and, and to our peers and to industry reps, which we often learn a lot more from them than reading a research paper.
1: So there's technological advancements that are driving patient outcomes, but I think you've touched on this earlier, that there are a lot of other aspects of hearing care and treating the whole person that can help drive patient satisfaction and outcomes as well aside from the technology you talked about the Cochlear Kids Camp that you're involved with with the Listen Foundation what would be your advice to hearing care providers or just people involved in the hearing care community at large where do you think there's more opportunity to drive progress to drive innovation outside of you know the electrode design or the surgical technique
0: I think there's a the big opportunity to to really provide team approach to patients with hearing loss. And um, again, it takes a commitment, but having a a team of people, audiologists uh, working with rehab specialists, uh, working with social workers and psychologists, and remembering that, that patients with hearing loss have more needs than just the cochlear implant, just the surgical procedure to put them in. They need the support of other people with hearing loss. They need support like the Cochlear Kids Camp can provide. And again, we're we're treating the whole person here, not just a one-hour operation. So for, for surgeons setting up a new cochlear implant center, remembering that and really solidifying a great referral network to get patients sent into your center, but also to be able to help patients afterwards with uh, a referral network for the support they they might need after a cochlear implant. We know that some adult patients and in fact large number of adult patients need post-operative rehabilitation, for example, to really maximize their benefit from the technology and we know uh, virtually every child with a cochlear implant needs post-operative rehabilitation so really working to solidify, a network of, of people, educators, uh, rehab specialists, audiologists, uh, is critical to, uh,
1: to providing the best care for the patient. Dr. Kilsa, thank you so much for joining us on Hearing Health today. It's been a fantastic conversation. I learned a tremendous amount about the history of cochlear implant surgery and where there's opportunity for innovation in the future.
0: Thanks for including me. It was a real pleasure to chat with you today, Craig.
1: We've received some great feedback from our listeners around the world. Please continue to share your perspectives with us so we can create the most engaging podcast for hearing health professionals. Click the link in the episode notes to share your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. And of course, a big thank you from all of us here at Hearing Health Today for supporting and listening to season two of this podcast. We're excited to continue growing this podcast along with great minds in our industry and give you the best insights and conversations possible. We'll see you soon. Just a quick reminder, the views of the interviewees in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Cochlear Limited or its subsidiaries. This material is intended for health professionals. If you are a consumer, please seek advice from your health professional about treatments for hearing loss. Outcomes may vary, and your health professional will advise about the factors which could affect your outcome.